Warning, this podcast is known by the state of California to contain spoilers. Oh yeah, I know all about you. Like the fact that Spider-Man won't let you help your poor daughter. It's just, it doesn't seem right to me. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast, and they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast, and your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2. This is a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi, and with me is my co-host. Welcome, listeners, to another sequel cast to the sequel. I should have mentioned his name, William Thrasher. That's also good, too. Yes, yes. uh, This will be an interesting one. You know, we're wrapping up our look at Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy with Spider-Man 3. And uh, I actually was was searching around. You're familiar with Google Books, Will? Yes, yes, I am. Yeah, so um, they have excerpts or sometimes mostly like the full books of stuff that's out there so i I, on a whim i looked up the making of spider-man 3 book and nearly all of the section dealing with the screenplay writing was on there so i did i got some interesting research from there that we will talk about just uh, pulling up just some basic stats in the film and uh, we'll do what we do um this is uh directed by sam raimi like the other two pictures we've been talking about check out the other episodes at sequelcast2.podbean.com or look up sequelcast2 on itunes or stitcher or whatever podcast thing you use uh this was a screenplay by sam raimi ivan raimi and alvin Sargent, um based on a story by sam raimi and ivan raimi uh it stars the usual gain of idiots but new to the cast we have bryce dallas howard topher grace thomas hayden church James Cromwell, and uh, that's pretty much it for the new people. Um, music, Christopher Young, so not Danny Elfman. Christopher Young did um, a lot of uncredited work on Spider-Man 2, and uh, we've heard his music before on Hellraiser 1 and 2. Um, cinematography, Bill Pope, edited by Bob Murawski. Uh, this has a, a bloated running time of 139 minutes, uh, and even though a, a lot of people um, like to talk shit about this one, it was quite successful. Uh, off of Alleged budget of two hundred fifty-eight million, it made eight hundred ninety million worldwide. Yeah, I'm looking at the at, at the the these numbers, and I do find it shocking that we didn't get a fourth Spider-Man film in this series, even if they did end up recasting a role or two. Um, I know a little bit about that, and we'll we'll, we'll talk about that on, on some of the factoid stuff. But in short, um, you know, one of our segments in the show is just to give a brief summary of the plot for people that haven't seen it, to give them some context. So I will do my best. Um, <laughs> Sp- Spider-Man 3 is about Peter Parker, who... Uh, it's a bit like... Uh, I mentioned this on Twitter, and some people agreed with me. Um, it's a bit like Rocky in Rocky 3. You know, he's at the height of his fame. He's well-liked. He Because of that, he's gotten arrogant. He's also become an asshole. And, um, well, that's in part motivated by by the symbiote, but we'll get into that. Yeah, yeah, we'll get into that. Uh, speaking of which, you know, this uh, black symbiote thing kind of falls on an asteroid thing to, to Earth and flops on and uh, turns Peter's suit black and makes Peter, uh, or Spider-Man, you know, super power, 
powerful and, and brings out some of his darker impulses. What they consider a darker impulse is odd, to say the least. Um, in the meantime, we have a, an escaped... Uh, prisoner flint marco played by thomas hayden church who turns into the sandman but don't worry listeners we have more bad guys that's right we not only do we have that we have um you know sort of triple teaming spider-man you have sandman you have uh uh, harry osborne who takes on the um mantle of the new goblin that's what the toy was called i don't think they give it a direct name in the show um and then you also have Eddie Brock, photographer for the Daily Bugle, uh, gets to some of the symbiote and turns into Venom. And so there, a lot of fighting goes on. There's some tears on top of a rooftop. And, um, yeah, that's well, Spider-Man 3. An aborted uh, Gwen Stacy story arc grafted onto this film as well. Uh, yeah, if this film wasn't packed to the gills enough geez um so i am pulling up um some information here as as we said this came out in 2007 and 2007 was a big year for um for movie sequels but actually you know looking this up uh, domestic gross spider-man 3 was the number one movie in the united states um, number two was Shrek the Third. Number oh, three wow. was the first live-action Transformers. Number four was Pirates of the Caribbean three, uh, the At World's End. I actually like that one. And number five was Harry Potter five, which was the Order of the Phoenix. So I mean, this was a movie. This was a year that also Rush Hour three. That's terrible. Came out that year. <laughs> um, so you had a lot of you know number threes. At that's right because this is shortly after we moved to Portland, Oregon. It's all coming back to me now. Um, you had Spider-Man 3, Shrek the 3rd, and Pirates of the Caribbean 3, all in the same summer. So, there you go. And, um, so even though people shit on this movie, it's not like it wasn't successful, right? It's not like it lost a lot of money. Uh, this is before, this is before Iron Man, right? Before the Dark Knight. Well, everyone had every reason to believe this was going to be a great movie. The first two Spider-Men did so well. It's got most of the, most of the people who made those first two movies are back in it. Uh, and... Venom was going to show up, and for for all the characters' faults, Venom is a ridiculously popular Spider-Man villain. Now, why do you think Venom is so popular? You think it's because of the Todd McFarlane, the way he drew him, or is it because it's like sort of '90s excess? I think, I, I think it comes from from two factors. One, Venom is the perfect dark side of Spider-Man. It's it's he's the anti-Spider-Man. He is the opposite. He's a reporter, he's flagrantly irresponsible, he's driven he's driven by uh irrational self-interest. Uh and of course he can do everything Spider-Man can do but often often on a larger scale either because his powers are enhanced or because he just doesn't care about the consequences of his actions. But two, the original Venom story arc in the comics played out so well because it was spread out over so many issues uh in in the original comics it took a long time for spider-man to go from having the black suit into becoming venom and then the venom suit being passed on to, to brock so it's one of those things where it's a story that had a lot of time to breathe mm. and um i mean and as we mentioned i think there is well here 
why don't we talk about when we first saw the movie and then I'll go back into I'll go into some of the script details before we talk about it how does that sound no problem great um I first saw Spider-Man 3 uh, in theaters I've actually seen every Spider-Man uh, of at least the Sam Raimi films in theaters which is kind of surprising I don't do that I don't go to the theaters as much as I used to because it's gotten more expensive um especially now since I'm unemployed but that's another story um so Spider-Man uh, you know, I was going to a lot of movies. I was going to a lot of dates. Uh, but this one I went to see by myself because I was just a movie nut. I went to the movies a lot back then uh, by myself, uh, which was fun, I guess. And uh, <laughs> I went begrudgingly because the reviews were, were so bad. And um, I like Venom. Sandman has never been one of my favorite characters. And uh, I, I, I sort of went... Because I felt like I had an obligation to go because I was a nerd, which isn't a good headspace to go into when you're going to see a movie. <laughs> and uh, I, I just came out, um, especially near the end with the how the final fight with Venom and, and all those things. I just started several times before the movie. I would just sigh and shake my head. And uh, it's not I'm rewatching it for this show uh, yesterday. It's not unwatchable. There's interesting things, but um, it's. It's like a pizza with too many toppings. You start to lose the flavor and you can't quite tell, you know, it just seems excess for the sake of excess. Uh, what about you, Thrasher? Did you see this in the theater? Uh, yes, I saw this in the theater. Uh, it, so it came out on May 4th. I saw this in the theater in, uh, I think in, in June. I actually saw it, saw it with my family. It's, it's one of those... Th- like my, I've mentioned this before that my family has kind of a reunion every year in the Outer Banks. Oh uh, ah, yes, and so, yeah. th- so this year we all and we all we always try to see a movie as a family. And this that that particular year, this was the movie that we saw, uh, and the whole family went to it. And I kind of waited until then, and I hadn't mm. read any reviews going in. Oh no, sim- okay. Simply because. Typically, I only read a movie review when it's a movie that I don't know whether I want to see yet or whether it's just a film critic who I really, really like. And I hadn't discovered Todd Vanderworth uh, at this time, so I hadn't uh, hadn't uh, hadn't read anything about it. And we we all we all saw the movie, and it was the strange phenomenon. We all we all leave the theater, and most of my family's reaction was, "Oh well, that was a movie." Whereas myself, my brother, my cousin Travis, really any of us who grew up with the Spider-Man character came out of the theater with just a resigned sigh. Interesting, yeah. Um, And then found ourselves having to explain what the deal with the black suit was. Right, because it right. is such. Its um, inclusion in this film, at least its its entrance into this film, is such a, an afterthought. I mean, I I don't understand what you would think of this if you weren't already familiar with the Venom character. Yeah, also, like, um, man, when I was a kid, like, reading some of the Spider-Man comic books, some of the first uh, Spidey comics I read was when he wore that black suit. Oh, yeah. Which I I think it's one of the best designs for the Spider-Man costume in my book, where it's just completely black, and then you have this angular white spider on his chest. Oh yeah, it was it was a great costume. It's one of the few good costume redesigns in comics, mm-hmm. and because the, because the Venom storyline was spread out so much, uh, it he wore that costume for several years in the comics. That was yeah, the Spidey yeah. costume, and when and when he got the original red and blue costume back, that was a huge deal in Marvel Comics. Right. Um, okay. So let me. I, I did some pre-search, as, as we call it here. And um, let's talk a bit about, you know, what 
they wanted to do with with the script for this. Um, Sam Raimi, he, he hasn't been shy saying uh, he's a big fan of like the Steve Ditko run of Spider-Man. He likes oh, yeah. the old school original stuff. So he wanted, um, he liked Sandman as a villain. He wanted to do something with Sandman, which of course makes special effects very complicated. And he originally um, wanted to, him and his brother Ivan Raimi, um, I haven't looked to see what else Ivan has written. But um, let me just check that. I'm just sort of curious. Because Actually, keep, he... keep going. I'll look it up for you. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Oh, he worked on Darkman and um, Army of, of Darkness. Of course. Yep, Drag Me to Hell. Oh, yeah, so he's been working with his brother for a while. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. So um, with uh, they wanted the theme of redemption and that Spider-Man, you know, he was he uh, and and regret and wanted all these complicated themes in a superhero film which is possible, but difficult. And originally it was going to be Sandman and the Vulture. Um, notes from the, the studio, and Sam Raimi sort of agreed that Vulture was kind of ham-fisted in there in the script and didn't seem to be integrated in a way as personal as what they did with Sandman, making him related to the death of Uncle Ben. We'll get into that in a minute. Um, and so the, the studio, Avi Arad, who's a executive in charge of a lot of the Marvel movies, or at least was at that time, um, really was pushing Venom because it, the fans were demanding it's a fan favorite character. Um, you know, he even had his own book and was an anti-hero sort of thing at, at one point. So um, they wanted to do it with Venom. And so this was the strangest part. Two screenplays were being worked on simultaneously, one maintaining Vulture and the other with Venom. Wow. And the one that, that had Venom was Alvin was by Alvin Sargent, who also wrote uh, was a writer on Spider-Man 2. Um, and they ended up going with... Uh, but, you know, they already said, we're, we're going to do... Uh, ben Kingsley is going to be Vulture, and he said yes. And then they got i guess the book tap dance the making of book uh, tap dances around this but i'm assuming you know studio pressure just forced them to do venom instead and so it seems like the venom stuff is done under duress also at one point they realized there was so much crap in the script they wanted to split it up into two movies spider-man 3 and spider-man 4 and film them back to back but then it was judged this would have this movie is getting really expensive anyway because of the movie star salaries uh, and the uh, special effects, and well, we just might—they sort of chickened out and went back to just do one film. So, hearing all that, what do you think? Well, I, I had heard before that Venom was gonna was tacked on due to studio pressure, uh, and I and I remember the news going out that Ben Kingsley had signed on to play the Vulture. That was huge news at the time, and then it just vanished because, of course, that version of the movie um, never crystallized. I think this is also a rare case where if they had split this into two movies, that might have actually worked out in this film's favor. First, right. It give it gives the Venom story more room to breathe, mm -hmm. but it also means you can really build up Eddie Brock as a villain because if you break it up into two movies, I would presume that at the end of the first movie, Spider-Man rejects the Venom suit and Eddie Brock gets it. And so in the second part we would get to see Eddie Brock being the screen version of Venom we always wanted to see. You know, really give him a chance to just wreak havoc in New York as Venom. I see. Um, yeah. You know, about, and I'll talk about the research I did on what Spider-Man 4 would have been later, because they, they got 
some pre-production work done on that um, that's out there. So, yeah, I mean, this this movie has a lot of problems. Where to begin? Should we just go through it from the beginning, or how do you want to do this? I, I suppose, well, I guess we, we ought to talk about it, um, that the, the, the second film was, was, you know, really focused with just having Doc Ock as the villain. This movie has too many villains. Uh, it's it's forgotten the lessons of the of the latter day uh, Batman movies where they just overloaded the film with antagonists. Like Sandman is a good classic, dare I say, iconic Spider Man villain, but he's not quite the villain that you can really build a movie around. He he's he would work better, more of a glorified henchman. That being said, the more I think about it, the more I like the decision of tying uh, Sandman into the death of Uncle Ben. I do, I do now revisiting this movie. I, I do believe that that was the right choice. And also, you know, it's like you couldn't, um, you didn't see the death happen right in the first film, so that gives him that out to sort oh, of retcon true. it. Yeah, it doesn't like they don't they don't have to work too hard to retcon that. Sure. Um, I I almost think the Sandman stuff uh, is interesting. The the stuff with Harry Osborn is a natural conclusion to what they you know did with the reveal at the end of Spider Man Two, where he finds his his dead father's secret laboratory. Um, it's the Venom stuff that's just so... You don't need an extra bad guy. And I know Venom's cool. I like Venom. Uh, I really like Carnage more. Um, oh, yeah. That, that's just... Because Carnage is just nuts. But, uh, yeah. I, and, then, and then you mentioned Gwen Stacy, who I keep on forgetting is in this film. Yeah, they have such a hard time shoehorning the romantic subplots into this. And this is, and this is one of those things where a lot of the decisions that were made throughout the Spider-Man series make a lot more sense when you realize nobody knew that they were going to be sequels, you know, such, such as mm, making Mary Jane mm-hmm. the love interest in the first film. Um, and there were people who liked the comics who were critical of that, who felt that it should have been Gwen Stacy in the first film and that she should have died, uh, like in the comics, uh, and working Gwen oh, Stacy huh. in three. Well, well, I mean, it's a comic book. She's not dead permanently, but I mean, that's that's the original Spider-Man Goblin story is that Gwen Gwen Stacy dies uh, at, because of because of the Goblin. Um, but in in this film, three movies in is not the time to introduce Gwen Stacy. Yeah, and they actually um, we're not going to talk about this at least not not we might cover this series later. But they do the Gwen Stacy thing better in Amazing Spider-Man too. Oh well, that's good to know. You know, you know what I think it is that the the Gwen Stacy, the Gwen Stacy Mary Jane sort of rivalry, such as it is that is threaded throughout this film, it feels like a very, very watered down Betty versus Veronica rivalry. Yeah, it, it does feel a bit cutesy and a bit like a soap opera. Um, and I think that's in part because that rivalry never existed in the comics, so they didn't know how to make it manifest uh, in this film. Well, when you have a rivalry to create some sort of a drama, right? You want some conflict between the characters to make it interesting. And and as as we mentioned, this is a movie you have much less time than years and years of a comic to throw hints uh, oh, here and there. So it um, this film, you know, near the beginning has a a musical number, which I wasn't expecting. <laughs> 
Peter Parker, he wants to propose to Mary Jane. You get a really nice scene where Aunt May gives her her wedding ring to give to... Uh, like, I, I think all that stuff is great. Like, that plot line, I think, is set up pretty well. You no, know, it's, ve- it's very sweet, and it's, and it's very um, human. Uh, it's... And, and you know, the, I guess I, I don't, I don't, we don't have this podcast to rewrite the movies, but in many ways, <laughs> like Peter, uh, Aunt May giving Peter the ring should definitely be in the very beginning of this film. But the, but like the big proposal probably should not happen until the end. Like make his aborted attempts to propose, make that like a thread that's woven. Yeah, make it like a bit of business, right? It's um and, and Peter Park and Tobey Maguire is great at like the nerdiness of Peter Parker, and he goes to see Mary Jane in her Broadway play, and he like nudges the guy next to him. He's like, "That's my girlfriend, isn't she lovely?" And she gets like shit on by bad reviews, and he's like, "Well, they just don't know you how I do, MJ." You know, like there's a nice earnestness to Peter Parker. Yeah, and and, it, and it's both it's both true to the character, but it does also sort of help play up who he is, so we can see his corruption due to Venom later. And the corruption isn't enough that he gets, in my opinion. But we'll we'll get into that. Um, so after he gets the, this movie is such a jumble in my head because well, so much well, shit having, happens. Well, they're having like a picnic, and a meteorite falls in Central Park. Yes, but before then, um, there's the fight with Peter and Harry. Oh, yeah. Because, recall, listeners, at the end of Spider-Man 2, Harry Osborn runs across the, the laboratory of his father, his dead father, and he we, we see a really cool framed scene where it sort of pans along the table and we see all the glider prototype stuff, and then at the end we see Harry Osborn step out of the green gas machine that his father used and uh and his his muscles are trembling and he he looks kind of possessed so he has on different outfit he's the new goblin i think his design looks stupid i think it's too simplistic well it's also it has this real 90s extreme look and the fact that they traded in a goblin glider for a hoverboard <laughs> yeah I, I think what what bothers me more is in this fight scene um you know the the goblin finds um the new goblin finds Peter Parker, who just got the the rain, and there's a bit of business of him trying to keep the rain from falling out of his suit jacket as he sort of is fighting. And it bothered me that I really don't like it uh, in movie in these movies where the characters, the hero's face, has to be exposed the whole time. When the whole point of the of the hero costume is they wear a mask. And <laughs> yeah. I, I know, and in the scene. You have Peter Parker in plain clothes in a business dress-up Sunday best suit. But you introduce New Goblin, and you see his face so much, it's like, wouldn't that have been more interesting if we didn't know who that was? And that was sort of a mystery? I don't know. It's That, that, could, have, that could have been done. And the more I look at this costume, the more I realize it looks like one of the spinner costumes from the 90s. I don't know if you remember that from the comics. No, no, I... I only read the comics piecemeal. Um, it, it was a weird Spider-Man arc where Spider-Man created a series of additional secret identities for himself called the Spinners. That's what this looks like. It looks like one of the Spinner alternate costumes. Was that related to the Clone Saga? Uh, it, this was after the Clone Saga. Uh, okay. Um, there's a really good like 100-page blog online of writers that were uh, of uh and a guy analyzing 
the whole clone saga with the original comic writers. Oh, cool. And artists, but um, that's neither here nor there. Um, it, but the, the thing about this battle, though, is that you know, Spider-Man yeah. does eventually win, and then one of the most groan-worthy story beats comes up. Harry gets <laughs> amnesia. Yeah, it, it they do a lot of swinging around. I, I recall vividly in the theater being nauseous at this sequence, but watching it at home, it wasn't so bad. I think I might have sat too close to the screen in the theater or something, because it's not... It's not really shaky cam. You get a lot of the camera sort of like swooping. Well, they, they, well, they try to like they they try to kind of make your perspective as fluid and as up and down, kind of crazy as Spider Man's own perspective. I think that's what does it. Yeah, it doesn't entirely work. But at one point, uh, Parker swings Harry, and he, he falls and bounces off a lot of things, which is sort of funny. He wakes up and he's like, "I don't know who I am." James Franco is really good at playing stupid. I think he does as good as he can. But the amnesia thing is such a, a classic lazy device in stories. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that I feel really like it was it was it's hardly ever used well to begin with. But I feel like it was tr- well and truly burned out in the eighties, both on on TV soap operas particularly, uh, and in comic books. And James Franco looks bored in his performance in this movie. It's funny you mentioned that. I thought he looked sleepy. <laughs> that too. <laughs> I think in retrospect, he said he didn't like some of these bigger Hollywood movies he was doing. Because um, James Franco, for those who don't know, has directed or co-directed a lot of films. Um, he, he is he is multi-talented. You just wouldn't know it from seeing his performance in this film. Yeah, maybe he had too much on, on his plate. I don't know. Um, but and I, I think he can be good sometimes. I just don't think... As Harry Osborne, it's not one of his better parts. I think he's much better in a sort of high-concept comedy like Your Highness. Did you ever mm. see that one? Uh, yes, yes, I have. Yeah, sort of the fantasy spoof where he, he even has a musical number in that. But um, That might be can, worthy of a sequel commentary. Uh, good call. Um, you can tell we like this movie because we're avoiding talking about it. Okay, <laughs> so Flint Marco, one of the many fucking characters in this film, is... A guy who escaped from prison, and, and he has a family and a daughter. I believe that's not from the comic, or at least not from the original stuff. He Not not from the original stuff. I mean, yeah. he, he was, in the comics, he was originally just a thug who didn't have much backstory other than he was a hold-up man who got into a particle accelerator <laughs> explosion that yeah. involved actual particles of sand and became the Sandman. But I, I think the stuff, we don't get a lot of it, um, and there's a different cut of the film that has a little bit more of the storyline, but... Um, Flint Marco, uh, Thomas Hayden Church, I think, does a really good job. And the even though they don't give much time to it, the relationship between him and his wife and his daughter, I think, is well done. Well, it, it is it it is humanizing, but they also they don't they don't overdo it. They don't they don't like give. They don't. Yeah, it's like, not too give, schmaltzy. Yeah, they don't give the child like a disease that he's trying to. They they don't do anything that justifies his criminal behavior, which. And, yeah, it's probably a good call, but also just like between his performance and the costume, it is like he stepped straight out of the comic. Um, well, and, and, and it's funny you mentioned the costume, both in the theater and watching this at home uh, last night. When he 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 breaks into his own house and he has a uh, orange jumpsuit, he's looking for something to wear. He picks out a, a green striped shirt that's exactly like what he wore in the original comics. Oh yeah, and that's hysterical because it's it's, well, it's really ugly really but really easy distinctive. To, describe to police, if you knew he was wearing it, 
Right. It, it's something you would only see in a 1960s comic, but it's just, it's, it, that's a wonderful callback to the original. And I know it's not supposed to be funny, but I laugh my ass off when he's running away from the cops and falls into the particle accelerator and then can't leave. Like, it's such a hokey origin story, even for Stan Lee. But um, <laughs> Thomas Hayden Church does his best to try to bring pathos to the character. And uh, how do you think the effects for the Sandman himself hold up? Because those were very expensive and got a lot of press at the time. Overall, I think they work very well. I mean, they, they do a good job of making all the things he does from the comics uh, like look good in three dimensions. Um, I particularly love that first scene when he's, when he's trying to re- reincorporate his body after the particle accelerator and, like... You know, he's, like, trying to form a human shape and his body keeps falling apart. There's a lot of character in that animation. And I Mm -hmm. I think that's what saves it, is that they do give the animation for his sand powers a lot of character. The only time that I don't like his... uh, the way they render the sand powers is when they is when they get into his, his primary weakness, which is water, which causes his particles to break up. I'm never satisfied with how he looks when the when he gets wet. Too cartoony. Yeah, I guess I guess so. They probably like in in true Sam Raimi fashion, they probably should try to make that look more horrific, uh, and more kind of body horror like. But for what for whatever reason, it it does feel it does feel softened and it isn't invested with the same character as uh, when he's just going crazy with giant sand fists. Um, yeah, it. You know, Sandman is not one of my favorite characters, but I think Tom Hayden Church does a good performance. I like the gag later where he's walking on the sidewalk in his human form, but he still doesn't quite got it, and there's like a trail of sand behind his steps. <laughs> that's very cute, and that's very uh, comic booky. y um, After this, we see Spider-Man do um, something... We see Spider-Man, you know, not doing doing regular daring do he's not fighting a supervillain there's like a crane that has gone amok remember and it wrecks the uh the building where there's the it's like a photo shoot or something oh yeah with with Gwen Stacy and with Mary Gwen Jane Stacy uh, and Mary Jane yeah well it's, it's nice it's nice to see him just kind of just doing general do-goodery yeah we also get introduced not just to Gwen Stacy played by Bryce Dallas Howard in a uh distracting blonde wig oh um, god that hair is so fake yeah, it's, uh, it's but, fake to the point where I really want a character to comment about how she bleaches her hair or wears a wig or something. <laughs> that that would have been good. Um, Bryce Dallas Howard is okay. I've liked her in other stuff. Um, but she doesn't get much of an opportunity here with Gwen Stacy. Uh, but uh, better, I think, is James Cromwell as her father, Captain George Stacy. He's That's... just sort of he's all business, and I, he's just a solid character actor you can dump into any scene. No, it, it 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 works. He does he does give you a, you know a good impression. Uh, it's it's not as scene stealing as the J Jonah as J Jonah Jameson, but he's got some weight. Uh, the J Jonah Jameson comedic bit with his uh, blood pressure pills is hysterical. Like that's that's classic <laughs> Sam Raimi goofiness. Oh yeah. And okay, so let's let's talk about let's talk about something here. So. Venom does just come out of nowhere because you know, yeah yeah let's get into that he's just a little black blob in that meteorite fragment that clings on to Peter Parker's scooter and then eventually merges with his costume. 
But in the second film, you've already introduced that J. Jonah Jameson's son is an astronaut who's been to space several times. Yeah. It would have it could have been so smooth if you just had Venom on something that Jonah's son brought back from space. I mean that's that's what they did in the Spider Man animated series from the nineties and it that's worked right. really well. Because you can't you can't do the 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 comic book version of Venom's origin. So why not use the astronaut you already have? Yeah, they drop that character like a hot potato, don't they? Um and yeah. I, I don't know. Like I like some of the cheesiness with, with the black uh, goop going on, on Peter. Well, um, it, it's 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 a scene that Sam Raimi is clearly very comfortable with. I mean, it is, yeah. it is like something out of Evil Dead, this creeping darkness just entwining itself with Spider-Man's costume. Well, and I'm also reminded of like older science fiction films like The Blob. Oh, yeah. Right. It, it's that sort of hokey... Uh, and the the music by Christopher Yeun, when we see the blob stuff creep around, it's like very melodramatic. And Christopher Yeun also did music for Hellraiser, and, and his stuff has a nice dark sound to it. He was a good choice for the composer for this. Um, so as his suit, as he wears the new suit, he feels uh, he gets his joie de vivre back and uh, gets more aggressive. And it also changes his personality as Peter Parker. Um, which I think is the the part of the film that pisses off fans the most, perhaps. Well, I mean that that is that is you know from from the comics it uh, it Venom is supposed to bring out his dark side. It's just that he it's less of a dark side and more of just this. He 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 seems to turn into every every asshole internet commenter. If they, <laughs> if they, if all those comments could congeal into a person, that's what Peter Parker becomes. He's got that awful hair, the awful attitude, and he's just so obsessed with showing off. Like we should fear for what's happening to Peter in these scenes, but instead, I'm just annoyed with him and wish the movie would find something else to do. Doesn't he slap Mary Jane? You know, he yeah, he does he does get physically abusive, and like that that is one of those things where that that when is I saw going that in the theater. Far. Yeah, when I saw it in the theater, people gasped. Like that's like yes, that is that is darkness. But one, I don't think that's in Peter to begin with. Venom is supposed to enhance what you already have. But two, uh, that's not something you can really walk back from. Yeah, you can't undo a punch or a slap. Yeah, right. Like even, even if you know, you know, even after purging himself of Venom, you know that like that's she should never take him back. Like that should be the end of his relationship with Mary Jane forever. That would have been some real character drama, sure. And he's like, no, it was the suit. Yeah, uh, uh, I didn't like how they make his personality either um, with, with the darkness, but I, I, I did read one one comment on the internet uh, years ago that made me put it in a different perspective, and it's like, oh. don't you think that really is supposed to be what Peter Parker thinks is cool, and that's why it's so lame? Now, that I can see. Cause that, that, that feeds into the idea that Venom enhances what's already there. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think like that's now the movie doesn't tell you that, but I think looking at it from that point of view, it's like his idea of cool is just so lame that it's funny. Um, well, it, it, I think that was a, that was a clever analysis, and, and I, I I don't know who wrote that comic. This was something from like eight years ago, but 
Well, can we can we talk point. about when this kind of breaks this breaks down when it turns out that being evil makes you an expert a jazz pianist? Yeah, the dance sequence. Lord. Th- this was the this was kind of the the, the most groan inducing sequence where Peter Parker starts playing Fever on the piano and just doing this. Just doing this, yeah, this whole song and yeah. dance number. Like, on the, uh, on the one hand, Sam Raimi's one of the few directors who I think could make a song and dance number in a superhero film work, but it's so unearned in this I movie. Think and so... At least Tobey Maguire seems to be having fun playing the Dark Peter. Oh, no, that's, that's true. He looks like he's having a great time, but I don't feel it. It, it mm-hmm. ends up coming off as, as as hammy rather than something that probably should be darkly whimsical, uh, and, and as always, they don't they don't set up. I think that one of the things that makes this not work is they don't set up that he knows how to play the piano. It seems to imply that the alien organism he's bonded with <laughs> knows how to play the piano. Sure, yeah. And and as people did point out in the first film, Aunt May does mention that she teaches piano to the neighborhood kids. Whoa! But that's that's a two. Deep that's cut. that's two movies ago, uh-huh. and they never set up that she taught Peter. Like we should, at least once, we should have seen Peter dicking around sure. with the piano. Maybe not very well. Yeah, yeah, that that would have made that scene pay off a bit. Um, I, I mentioned not being crazy about Venom, but I really enjoy Topher Grace's performance as Eddie Brock. And it, it, in fact, it's he's so good at being a dick photographer. It almost made me wish Topher Grace played Peter Parker. You know that that is funny because I was I was really skeptical when I saw that he had been cast in this film, but he plays an asshole so well, and Eddie Brock is one of comics' biggest assholes. Strangely enough, it did work, and and, and like even in that that hammy scene towards the end when he's in the church praying to God to kill Peter Parker, I buy that I buy yeah, that yeah. that's the kind of prayer a jerk like right. that would make. He pulls it off. I think, you know, the um, the way Venom looks in this, I just don't... I don't like the CG work very much. It's... In the comic, it, with with the inks, especially the way Todd McFarlane drew Venom, like, it's just so uh, muscly and over the top and with the big teeth and stuff. And it just looks like a bad cartoon the way they do it here. Well, um, I'm having trouble describing why, but... Well, I think what it is is, one, they don't do enough to differentiate it from the look of the Spider-Man suit. I mean, it really sure. is just yeah. a reskin. Yep. It's the Spider-Man suit done up in black with some tiny bits of silver highlights. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, two, the one thing that they don't really bring over in the comic is that even before Eddie Brock became Venom, he was still he was still a jock. He was very buff. He loved to work out. And that, in part, justifies how muscly Venom looks. Oh, but, okay. But Topher Grace has the same general body type as... Uh, as uh, as Peter Parker, as Toby Yeah, Maguire. I mean they they work out, but it's not like a Schwarzenegger. Um, I mean, he's he's a string bean, and that just carries over to him when he's Venom. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, no, that that's that's astute. It's a good point. It's um, so and especially we get a lot of going back to the thing I don't like about when you have a a character with a mask and you see the face a lot. You get an awful lot of Eddie Brock's face on top of the Venom outfit, which just looks stupid. Yeah, they probably should have just stuck with the monster teeth. <laughs> yeah. Um, we get a nice sort of comic book scene where I did like the scene like in an alleyway where Venom meets up with Sandman and they agree to team up to fight Spider-Man. <laughs> I think that that's like a good comic book kind of moment because like he 
that's a big thing on comics, right? Team ups. Oh yeah. And it and it it is kind of fun, and like it's it's one of those it's one of those things that makes me think that had they gotten to do the Sinister Six in the series, they probably mm. could have made it work really well. Did you like the Stan Lee uh, stuff in this? Oh gosh, I'm trying to. <laughs> well, he, he's you know it's funny we haven't mentioned his his cameos uh, yet because what because like he I gives advice that... to Spider Man. Yeah, he's like you know with great power comes great responsibility. Enough said. It's, it's something like that. It's real <laughs> it's... on the nose and cheesy, but Stanley's good at doing cheesy. Like I groaned, but it's kind of like a, it's like a grandpa kind of joke. Most of these Stanley cameos are ham-fisted and aren't very good. Uh, I think, in fact, one of the better ones is in Amazing Spider-Man One. Um, but yeah, I, it, it it's not one. It, it's 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 okay. It's cheesy, but it's it's kind of a thrill to see Stanley next to Peter Parker. Well, which is cool, and and you know he always did insert himself into his own comics, and and yeah, I, th- I think what I think what makes his cameo somewhat forgettable is simply because it probably should be the most over the top thing in the movie, but it's not Ooh. because the piano scene happened. Yeah, uh, what do you think about Bruce Campbell's scene in this picture? Um, I okay, I I loved it, and not just because I like Bruce Campbell. Like it's the most he's had to do in any of these films since the first one. Uh, yeah, and I just, I, I just, I love how on the nose it is. Like, I just love that. Ah, everyone, welcome to the table. Uh, I am French. Like, it's, it, it was yeah. crowd pleasing. It was so crowd pleasing. Yes. I can forgive it for seeming like it came from a completely different movie. It feels like I'm always it reminded a little bit of the waiter sketch from Monty Python's Meaning of Life. I don't know something uh, about the something accent. About it strikes me as sort of a Python sort of moment. Yeah, I guess it. it it was fun. It was it was the funnest thing in the movie. Like it could have used more of that, to be honest. <laughs> and this, and I remember at the time. Okay, so there there were lots of rumors about what the the fourth, and I'm sure we'll go into mo- this more detail later. What the fourth Spider-Man movie would have been would have been. Yes. Yeah. And one of the big rumors, because uh, uh, originally there was a rumor that in Spider-Man Two, Bruce Campbell was going to play the Lizard, but. After this movie, the rumor was Bruce Campbell was going to play Mysterio, yep. and it was going to be revealed that all the Bruce Campbell parts in all the previous films were Mysterio in different disguises, and yep, that some crime was secretly going on in all those scenes. <laughs> and and this scene would make me believe it, because it is so over the top. Yeah, no, that is one of the things they wanted to put in Spider-Man 4. We'll get to more of that later. I mean, how do you think of like the big showdown at the end, right? Too, too is that from the comics movie. where like the sound is a weakness of Venom? Yeah, well, I mean that's the the sound being the weakness is right out of the comics, and I do, yeah. I do that's one of the things that I think they communicate well in this. I think the thing I, I think the, what I don't like about this climax is there's there's too many moving parts. Uh, you know, I mm-hmm. I like Spider Man forgiving Sandman for being responsible for the death of Uncle Ben. Um, which I think is what you have to do because Sp- Spider-Man is not Batman. Spider-Man is not motivated by vengeance. He's motivated by a sense of responsibility. Uh, so it's very true to the character that he, that he learns to forgive. Um, and, and, and yeah, they do make, they do building up to that. They do make it seem like it's a real quest for vengeance thing, which I don't think works very well, but there's, there's too many moving parts in this climax between heroes and villains teaming up and everything going on with, with Venom, it probably should have been more of, it should have been more of a one-on-one fight. 
Yeah, or maybe like three back-to-back one-on-one fights. Sure. Um, I, I do like the irony that Harry dies the same way his father did. That that works. That that's a that's a nice touch. And, and it, yet, it's also very uh, telegraphed. You just know it's coming when he gets impaled on his own glider. But it, it still makes it satisfying, like thematically. Well, because he, he makes you know, a choice. Because he saves Spider-Man's life by jumping into the path of his own glider. I, that's the good part about it. Well, right. That's the good part. But also, it's sort of like the, the son does the sins of the father. I mean, and you know, and he goes out the same way, even though he's doing it for better reasons. Um, it, you know, when I saw the the metal pipe thing, I didn't know Venom's weakness from the comics because I'm not that familiar with it, and I just thought that the sound stuff was just really cheesy looking. Well, and I just okay, I will agree groaning. with you. It is cheesy looking because once all the pipes, because the idea that you're trapping them in kind of a cage, a, xy, a xylophone cage of pipes, uh, yeah, that's a pretty that's a pretty cool idea. But the way it looks with Spider-Man's running around the pipes, banging them, it it really does look like he's taunting a prisoner uh, in Attica. <laughs> that's like something out of a gangster movie. Yeah, in, in many ways, it might have been it might have looked better and could have been executed faster. If Spider-Man just like flat out dropped a church bell on top of him, trapped him in a church bell, and started banging on that, uh, it's so hard to do cinematically. And there's stuff you can buy in a comic that you can't buy in a movie. I yeah, I I, I don't know. It that just didn't quite work for me. Now, um, what truly doesn't work though is that you know what? Once he gets Eddie, once he gets the, the the symbiote separated from Eddie, there's the whole thing where like a pumpkin bomb gets thrown to the symbiote. Eddie jumps to get the symbiote, and they both die in this pumpkin bomb explosion. This is the movie learning a really bad lesson uh, from the success of the Batman films. The Batman movies had a horrible habit of killing off their villains. Um, Mm. Spider like it's Spider-Man yeah. beyond having, you know, a no kill rule, Spider-Man will save his villain's life. Like Sp- Spider-Man should have saved Eddie Brock, which would only make Eddie Brock more evil cuz Eddie Brock hates Spider-Man. Like he but would th- Isn't that sort of what they saved. already did with uh, in Spider-Man 2 where Spider-Man 2 saves um gets Harry out of trouble. Yeah. And Harry's like you killed my father and me don't think this is over between us. I mean, that's sort of a, that'd be sort of a similar beat, but yeah, it, it's it's disappointing. You have two characters that um, that die so quickly. Uh, oh, how about you know Peter talking to um, Sandman at the end and and learning more about the circumstances of uh, Uncle Ben? That's that's kind of nice, and and again, it kind of it it it, it works. It works better if you assume there's never going to be any any more movies, which, as it turns out, there weren't. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's not it's not too bad. Like, I'm glad that Sandman gets to have some emotional weight rather than just being a super powered thug. Right, and what what the reveal is, in case you haven't seen the movie, which if you haven't, you probably should before listening to sequel cast two, but that that's your business. Um, is that he'd never meant to kill Uncle Ben? Now that I don't like. Because Spider-Man is all about choices. Once you establish that a, an important character's death was a, was a result of chance and circumstance, then that that really destroys the weight of the thesis. Him killing Uncle Ben should be a choice he made that he now regrets and wants to do penance ah, to. It I see. Can't, it can't be an accident without but cheapening I... the notions of power and responsibility. But Thrasher, didn't you say that you liked? 
this business of of looping in Marco to Uncle Ben's death at the beginning of the show? No, I like I like that they did that. I don't but not like how they that did it, it wasn't a choice. I see. Okay, got it. Um, it just you know Peter Parker, you know, crying on the building. I, it's and and the Sandman, the wisp of sand floating away. Like it's it's laughable. I don't buy into it. Yeah, I, I want. I guess my thing is, I kind of like. I want to see justice done. Like, I feel like after this scene, Sandman should still be in one piece, but he should turn himself in. It's like, g- give him a shot at redemption that doesn't involve just. Well, the other thing is, like, he's not dead. We've seen him recorporealize himself after getting washed away in water before. This isn't the end. Well, and in fact, um, there's a different cut of this movie that just came out this year for some reason called The Editor's Cut, huh. which I don't think I've ever seen a movie with something called an Editor's Cut before. I don't think That's... I've seen that either. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it, but I was reading about the changes, and, and one of the, it's not a major difference, but I, you you do get a scene at the end uh, that was filmed and had special effects all done for it, where Sandman's daughter is playing in the playground, and the Sandman, you can see his face appear in her sandcastle and smiles at her. That gives a little bit of a payoff to the business with his daughter. They spend some time setting up in the beginning, which they never really go back to. Huh. But from what I take it, you know, in the editor's cut, another difference I read, um, in the theatrical cut, you have an awful scene where the Osborne's butler. Oh, yeah. uh, Let's talk about that, because they take that out of the editor's cut completely. Yeah, I'm glad they did that. That's a scene like um, that in, that infuriates me. So, so what happens in it? So, so the but the butler, you, you find out that the butler has sort of witnessed everything that that the you know Osborne Senior did as the Goblin, and he tells that he, he explains things to Harry, and essentially explains to Harry, oh, Spider Man didn't kill your father. Your father accidentally killed himself while trying to kill Spider Man, and it's like. That's vital information. That is vital information you should have shared with your employer's son years ago. Not only that, but in the fight scene in the beginning between um, Peter Parker and the new Goblin, um, Peter Parker explains that same thing to Harry, and Harry doesn't believe it. Yeah, it's 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 one of those like omissions like why why would why would anyone sit on this information why would anyone who's so devoted to the osborne family not mention this way early on it's butler ex machina <laughs> okay so we we've talked at length about spider-man 3 i think this has been an interesting conversation would you give spider-man 3 sequel yes or sequel no you know i'm i'm really on the fence because half i thought it was going to be sequel no Halfway through recording this episode, I switched over to sequel yes, but now huh. I'm back to sequel no. You just end the series on a high <laughs> point with Doc Ock. You yeah. don't really, you don't really need to get into it. Like all the ingredients in this film are great, but they mix together into an awful goulash that doesn't taste like anything. Sequel no. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sequel no. Um, Topher Grace is excellent as Eddie Brock. Uh, there are some fun moments in the movie, but moments do not a movie make. This is a messy, sloppy, overstuffed movie. Um, in some ways, it's not even as fun as a movie like Batman and Robin, where at least that's so terrible and campy, it's kind of enjoyable. This is just, um, at times, even kind of boring and too serious, and the tone's all over the place. 
Um, you can tell there was script problems, problems with this movie, and, and there, there was just too much going on. Like, had they split this up into two movies, I think that would have been better. Um, before we get into pitch a sequel, I'd like to talk about some of what they planned for Spider-Man 4. Yeah, let's um, get in. Because this Spider-Man 3, you know, was a success, and Sam Raimi, they offered him, and all the stars, a shitload of money to be in Spider-Man 4. Um, this would have had the Vulture as the bad guy. John Malkovich would have been the Vulture. Oh, he would have been amazing. It would have had Anne Hathaway as, and uh, the the news on this kind of goes back and forth. At one point, she was going to be a, a new character called the Voltress, but then she was going to be Black Cat. So I'm not really sure what it would have been. As you mentioned, Bruce Campbell would have been Mysterio. Um, they had done pre-production and spent, you know, some some money on this. There's concept artwork out there. And uh, I don't know if they would have used some of the discarded script for Spider-Man 3 that incorporated the Vulture for the story for Spider-Man 4. And um, what that storyline was, um, from what I understand in the book I read, is Peter Parker caught the Vulture doing one of his schemes before he became the Vulture and sentenced him to prison for several years because of it. And so the Vulture is coming out of prison to get his revenge. So you talk about how they did do a lot of pre-production work for a fourth Spider-Man movie. Yeah, uh, even announcing some of the casting. I a mean, few, so. a, a last year, I don't know who did this, but somebody found the, some of the storyboards from that, that they did as part of that pre-production and released oh, them really? online. Okay. One of the things that I find so fascinating uh, is that the store part a big the biggest chunk of the storyboards that were released were the film's opening and the the film's opening was going to I be Spider-Man on top of the world as like New York's top hero and the intro to the movie was going to be a montage of him just bringing in just criminal after criminal after criminal and they were going to blow through a lot of Spider-Man's rogues gallery. We were going to see him take down the Trapster. We were going to see him take down Oh, the that would have been great. And we were going to see him take down Mysterio and that was going to be Bruce Campbell's cameo is that he was going to be Mysterio in that Ah, montage. cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that would have been clever. Um, I, I don't, you know, at the end of the day, Sam Raimi walked away and I think they just Doing all the the budget analysis uh, or whatever you call it, it would have been way too expensive. Um, partially because of the actors' deals to come back to do a, a fourth Spider-Man after three was so successful, and I think maybe Sam Raimi's heart wasn't really in it. Um, instead, he he went off to do a movie we talked about on the original series, Oz the Great and Powerful. Oh yeah, but also at one point Sam Raimi was attached to do the Warcraft movie, so. He's been attached to a lot of products, projects. Yeah, in his I, I he directed an episode of the Evil Dead TV show. Um, it, it, I feel like it's been a while since he's done a movie. Is that right? I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think what the last because was it was it Drag Me to Drag Hell? Me to was hell. that after Oz the Great and Powerful? You know that was after Spider Man Three. It was between them. Yeah. Um, let's pull up the old internet movie database. That that is an odd uh, way a, to pronounce that's it. A, that's a Tim Curry inspired accent. Hello, we are going to the moon to space. He's um the time he, machine. We must stop the. the oh God, yeah. I'm just having flashbacks to Command and Conquer. Oh, you've seen this highlight reel of him like laughing in the middle of his dialogue, and they keep some of those takes. Oh no, Oz the Great and Powerful was the last film uh, that he did. 
that's a shame. That was quite some time ago. I'm yeah, sure every, he's had stuff in development. Everything no. else has been um, uh, television work, as far as directing goes, anyway. Well, and it, it, we should also mention Sam Raimi has done more in television than people realize. He was one of the producers on Hercules and Xena. Um, so, yeah, he's he's done a lot of stuff over the years. Been producing, he produced uh, <laughs> the 2015 remake of Poltergeist. I have not seen that one yet. I, I picked it up on the cheap because I was able to collect the series for a good price, and I've been uh, have too way too big of a horror movie collection. But um, Dark Man, I wouldn't mind doing that on the show sometime. Yeah, that that has uh, an interesting history, and also uh, also a TV pilot for an aborted Dark Man series that was never made. I never knew that. That's interesting. Um, well, the, the pilot is for all intents and purposes just a remake of the first movie with villains from the second movie. Oh, that sounds a bit like the pilot for Revenge of the Nerds. Um, <laughs> that's a TV-friendly version of the first movie, if you can believe it. Um, all right, well, so we've uh, let's do what? Uh, sorry, pitch sequel. If you could do a follow-up to Spider-Man Three, how would you do it, or would you do a reboot, or what the hell would you do, Thrasher? I mean, I'd, I'd definitely want to continue. Um, I would definitely want to continue uh, with uh, with with you know everything in this series but i guess at, th- at this point we've, we've blown through a lot of spider-man's rogues gallery so at this point i would like to just go go crazy by bringing in other aspects of the marvel universe and so what i would do is that i would i would base it off of the storyline where spider-man ended up getting a hold of dr doom's time machine but couldn't quite operate it and kept bouncing around between the past and future so it would be a uh, it would be kind of a Spider-Man of many eras things where uh, he's using where he's he's ba- traveling through time with his time machine. We get to see him interact with people uh, from New York's past and future, but as he's bouncing around through time, he's essentially setting everything up for the final conflict with Doctor Doom. So in the end, when he manages to get back to the present, uh, he's got his allies from across time. So like one of one of his allies is a Native American warrior from pre-Columbian times who has this whole spider motif. But he also teams up with Spider-Man 2099 because he goes to that future. Uh, mm. he, there's also a spy from World War II called the Spider. And so it's this great, like, it ends with this great, like, Spider-Men of many worlds teaming up against Doctor Doom, and cool. I would keep I would keep the time machine design where Doctor Doom's time machine like exists in different dimensions. So as a result, it just looks like a glowing square. I see. Like that's um, it, just a flat glowing square that you ride like a magic carpet through time. Uh, I can't recall the name, but there was um, a Spider-Man video game that was pretty cool on uh like you know playstation 3 and xbox 360 where you played as four different versions of spider-man it was spider-man noir um sort of the amazing spider-man um might have been spider-man ultimate and a uh and spider-man 2099 was in there too yeah yep and it was pretty neat um different gameplay too for those different sections oh that's cool yeah uh can't remember the title, but it's pretty fun if you can uh, have a system that can run the game. Um, you know, if I was to follow up, they already did Venom. Uh, I, I would just want to do uh, a Spider-Man film that's more action-focused. I would adapt my favorite Spider-Man arc, and I don't know that many of them, Maximum Carnage. Huh. I would bring Venom back 
uh, Eddie Brock back from the dead somehow or make it like he didn't actually die. Like, try to retcon that to put him in the story. Cause He's Venom just, like, horribly is, burned and in a coma. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe even you could do a, a, an homage to a old horror films where, you know, they're, they're mourning Eddie Brock's death. We see his gravestone that his hand pops out. Like, maybe a little <laughs> bit of the symbiote goes into the, the, the soil. And then we see, like, a, a, a half black hand pop out of the soil. The fist raising. And um, it's just nonstop superheroes walloping on each other you'd have to be uh, for rights reasons you'd probably have to be limited with who you would um feature because there's a shitload of characters in maximum carnage it's a, it's a true battle royale um and you would get green jelly back to do the music oh wow from the video game even using some leap motifs down no no I, I can't even remember what it what the music was but i remember like it was very novel to have a uh what genre would you say Green Jelly is? They were sort of like a, a latter day. They were sort of like a la- latter day punk, I guess would be the best way to describe it. Yeah. It, so it would, but that that they did music for a video game where they used like not very like highly compressed samples of guitars playing was pretty novel for the time. Oh yeah, it was and, and in fact they even got a credit when you st- when you started the movie. Yeah, with the band's logo. The, uh-huh. Yeah, the or the game. Yeah, the band like music by Green Jelly and the band's logo popped up like that. You never saw that. No, with the exception of maybe like Motley Crue pinball on the Sega Genesis, um, <laughs> where was you that had Doctor Feel. Yes, yeah, Doctor Feelgood was one of the musics on the tables, um, but it's on the Genesis only, so it's like uh, <laughs> the, the shit synthesized guitars. Um, Anyway, oh wow, I, I did not know this existed, but now I'm gonna have to do some some research into it. Yeah, you could you should play around if you find a copy. Um, okay, so at we did what you're watching, or now we're sorry, I all out of it this morning. <laughs> we're gonna move on to what you watching. Um, I watched something that was uh, had a, a cameo from one of our favorite actors. My wife has been on a bender watching all 50 million seasons of Will and Grace. And I happened to catch some of an episode. Uh, John Cleese does like a six episode story arc in the series where he marries and then divorces a character. Oh, that's and, right. And at the wedding, his brother flies in from England. His brother played by Tim Curry. <laughs> it, it might be one of the only times John Cleese and Tim Curry have ever been on screen together. Uh, this would have been from the maybe 2003 or 2004 probably 2003, something like that. And um, unfortunately, Tim Curry only gets a few line of dialogues, but his character, uh, the, ga- the the most successful gag he has is he goes and introduces himself to John Cleese and John Cleese's wife. I don't, I don't know the character's name on the show. I don't really care. Um, and Tim Curry kisses, you know, uh, grabs the wife, dips her down and gives her a real deep kiss and then he moves over to John Cleese and does the same to John Cleese. <laughs> and John and uh, as Tim Curry walks away, um, the the wife says something like, "Oh, what? Like, oh, your brother is some kisser." And uh, and John Cleese says, "Oh, just wait till you meet our father." <laughs> <laughs> wow. And I thought that that's a very funny bit of business. Because um, I knew that story arc happened, but I think I only caught the very end of it. And the only joke I remember was like, you know, well, well, like how how do we 
how do they want to like make him angry? They want to make John Cleese angry or lose his cool. Like, well, how do we how do we make him lose his cool? Oh, I know. Show him the American version of anything that was originally British. <laughs> yeah, no, John Cleese has quite an extended run at the end of the season of that particular show, and um, he he does a, a good job. I'm not Will and Grace. I could take it or leave it. It's not. I think it's okay, but it, it's fun to see him in an American sitcom for an extended part. And Tim Curry. Uh, really sort of gets the, the the shaft doesn't get a whole lot to do but it was fun to see two of them on screen that was a, a fun moment that is um, cool how about you thrasher what have you been watching well i guess i got first i gotta ask how much time do we have to talk because I, to- I saw two things but both could lead to a huge discussion uh we have time so all right well so first uh, uh i wanted to check out a documentary <clears throat> i uh, saw my scientology movie um, I've heard of this. I haven't seen it. Uh, so, what is it about? So, it's a I mean, it's it's a uh, documentary about Scientology, and it's hosted by uh, uh, it's written and hosted by uh, Louis Theroux, who uh, people may remember from his documentary TV series that used to be on I think IFC a while a long time ago. Uh, Louis Theroux's uh, Weird Weekends. And and he's he's one of those documentary makers that inserts himself into his own documentaries, uh, but it's it's him. It's it's him ostensibly, you know, again doing a documentary about about Scientology. But what's really weird about this documentary is that it's almost a documentary about making a documentary. Oh, interesting. Because like it, it all, and most of it ends up focusing around one particular uh, former member of the Church of Scientology that kind of becomes the focus of the film. But a big part of this movie is that there's things that they want to show reenactments of, and they 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 show more of how they made the reenactments than they show of the reenactments themselves. So does like, he try to go undercover to the Scientology? Um, oh, he he never he never or? goes he never goes undercover. Uh, huh. There there are there are some scenes where they go to like to film like like some B roll outside of different properties that the Church of Scientology is supposed to own. Uh, and sometimes they get confronted by security or, or, or church members. But it's really weird. Like, I, I wanted to like this documentary more than I did. I, I, but, I, like, it's, this is a movie that seems to be filming itself. And it's full of some cool things. There's, there's, really, neat, there's really neat interviews. There's, there's you know, some, some neat behind-the-scenes stuff about how, how the church is, is supposed to operate uh, for good and for ill. But I feel I feel like this is not the movie that they set out trying to make, because what their sub their subject ends up leaving the documentary, and once he does, the documentary is over. Is their subject a Scientologist? Oh, he's a former Scientologist. It's, I see. Uh, if I remember, cor- oh yeah, it's, it's uh, Mark uh, Mark Rathburn, who used to be pretty high up in their hierarchy. Okay. Um. Hmm. Um. I also I saw a, a second thing because you had a second thing you wanted to talk about, right? Oh yes, absolutely. Okay, um, I've been watching a, a lot of movies lately, and the, this one thing I saw was um, a Blade Runner twenty forty nine just came out, and I rewatched the final cut of Blade Runner because oh, cool. I think we're going to see the movie later today uh, if all goes well, and. Uh, I, I've seen this movie in the theater once when the final cut came in theaters. 
I've seen the different cuts, oh, several times. I've read a 400-page making of book um, by Paul Salmon. I forget what it's called, but it's, uh, it might be called Dangerous Dreams or something like that, but it's, it's very good. And uh, Blade Runner, it, in my opinion, I think it's, it's much less slow than I remembered it being. It, it's just a world I like to lose myself in, and I'm always surprised the movie is only two hours long because it feels longer. Like, it does have pacing <laughs> problems. Um, I did read the book recently, and the book is quite different. Uh, book being uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. And uh, it, it's just, I always, it's one of those films where if, when I rewatch it, I always notice something different about it. It, it is cool when a movie has that level of depth that you can you can keep mining it for new ideas and new experiences. Yeah, I um, especially think it's funny to... Um, I find some of the, the score by Vangelis unintentionally funny. I think it's also good, but especially the scene where he... Uh, Harrison Ford has sex with the robot Rachel... with the replicant Rachel... Like, this, the saxophone starts coming in, and it's such a 1980s thing. Well, it's a very wet saxophone. It's movie. extremely... It's dripping. It's... um, it, it, I like that piece of music, like, by itself. I might have it played in the background as I'm writing or something, but it, in the context of the movie, it it's um, it's very much of its time, and it's... Um, it, I was giggling, even though it's a serious scene. Uh, do you enjoy Blade Runner? Yes, yes, I do. And I'm definitely going to see the sequel. It's just all a question of when. Yeah, I'm glad I rewatched it because it's been a while and I, I wanted to get the names, remember what the different names were because I, I bet there'll be some sort of reference to it. Um, it's been getting good reviews. Um, so, yeah. Can't wait to see the sequel later today. Um, so what's your other film that you saw? So uh, I I love B-movies, and I finally saw a B-movie that I have been trying to see for, for almost 20 years now, uh, and that was uh, Rock and Roll Nightmare, starring John Micklethor. I've never heard of this. Uh... Oh, you, you must see this. It is a... It is a Canadian direct-to-video horror movie about a heavy metal band that moves that uh, moves to this house in the middle of uh, in the middle of the country in Canada, uh, and they're supposed they're supposed to be there to work on their next album. Uh, what they don't know is that there's like some evil spirits on the loose, <clears throat> and so one by one you see the entire band get possessed and destroyed by different puppety monsters. Uh, until in the end, a giant puppety Satan shows up, and then the film has a twist ending. <laughs> you know, this movie has a sequel. Yes, yeah, a relatively recent sequel, which I am now going to have to track down. Maybe this is a good candidate for the show if we can. Yes, if we can find that sequel. Yes, this is a great candidate for the show. Is it a musical? Then I'm sort of confused. It's. It's not a musical, but there are, like, you do see the band play several songs in their entirety. Uh, what are the songs like? Is it hair metal? Yeah, oh, yeah, it's, it is very much hair metal. And it's, and it's, it's the essence of hair metal so distilled that it's almost like a self-aware parody of hair, hair metal. But it's not. It's completely sincere. Is it 
well done? Like, would you listen to the songs on their own? Do they work as pieces of music, or is they incompetent? Uh, uh, I no, no, they're 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 very they're very well made. Uh, I would listen to this soundtrack on its own. And actually, a soundtrack was released on CD in two thousand six, which that's quite a delay because this movie came out in eighty seven. So it looks like you can buy the sequel on. Let me make sure it's the right. Yeah, it is Region One. Good. Um, on DVD for ten bucks from Amazon. Oh wow! And and the original was fourteen ninety nine. I'd probably just rent it then. Well, the um, original has the reputation, so I can understand why that costs more. But it's like yeah. it's it's written, directed, produced, and st- I'm sorry, no, it's written, produced, and starring John Micklethor, and it really is a showcase for him. I mean, you can tell. <laughs> and John Micklethor also did the music. Um, he also does the mu- He's also I think does the works in that same capacity on the second one. Oh yeah. Um, and just I'm, the puppety yeah. monsters are great. Oh, let's. <laughs> I'm reading an Amazon review of the sequel. Uh, I think I would like this movie. At one point, the little girl kicks the demon lord in the shin, and you can see the actor wasn't expecting that at all. <laughs> Probably the film's highlight. Yeah, I'm gonna have to track down the sequel. Um, well, the, it's, the it's cover the best for the sequel. Kind of B movie. That cover for the sequel is very uninspired. It's like this knight with a sword and people in poor makeup making bad zombie faces at the screen, and it's um, oh boy, yeah, this looks like something special. Very interesting. <laughs> Okay, um, so next time on Sequel Cast 2, it's October, it's the month of Halloween, and we are going to do, um, we're going to look at the first five Nightmare on Elm Street films. Nice. With bigger series, we like to break it up, and I cut it off at five because three through five have a bit of a story arc. I guess one, and then three through five all kind of have a story arc together. Number two is odd, um, but I think beloved by some we're gonna have mark with a c as a guest on that episode in some nice. capacity he's wanting to talk about this with us for years um i just have to check with his availability we might have to tack his stuff onto a different episode that's neither here nor there but yeah um i'm really excited to look at nightmare on elm street it's uh, i haven't looked at these older films in a while it's um the the set to get all the movies is a uh, really really cheap at least all the robert england films um so I, I, I'm excited, and you want to talk about, you know, some cheesy music. We have Dokken, I think, does the Dream Warriors uh, vocal theme. Oh, man. In, in the third one. Um, I forget who does the, the song for the fourth. The fourth one's directed by Rennie Harlan. The fifth one is Dream Child, which we see referenced in a poster in the movie It that just came out. <laughs> they go by a theater, and it shows Nightmare on Elm Street 5, the Dream Child, which is a funny reference. Um so yeah, and it'll be cool. We haven't talked horror in a while. I, I kind of wish we'd do more horror in the show, but we sort of... I, I don't even know what like genres would you say we do the most. We do a lot of comedies. Um, that would be a fun breakdown. If anybody's really into statistical analysis, go through our back catalog and, and tell us what we've done. Yeah, it'll probably have to be me, because I do have a master list of what we've done. But yeah, I, I, I'm curious, because it's, it's very eclectic, which I enjoy. Um Follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. 
Follow the show on Twitter at SequelCast2. If you have a few uh, dollars, throw them our way on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash SequelCast2. Speaking of which, I have to update the Patreon page. Oh, really? What yeah, I haven't... Coming? Well, I, I haven't done any updates to it. I need to put the show links on it. I need to... Uh, y- y- are you done with the pictures? We can put those on there. Oh, yeah, I can, I can get uh, some art sent to you. Yeah, if, I, I saw it on the phone, but if you email it... Okay, this is fun for the listeners, isn't it? Um, <laughs> it's it's sausage-making time. Sa- sausage-making time. Um, so what um, what piece of music would you like under Spider-Man 3? Oh, gosh. I think if we could, if we could find, like, an awesome, like, cover of Itsy Bitsy Spider. <laughs> okay. That, yeah, maybe if there's, like, a Marilyn Manson or something... Or like a big symphonic suite. Or that I, I know you haven't seen this film, but I'm going from... to mention something about Amazing Spider-Man 2 right now. Uh-oh. There's, uh, do you care if I spoil, it's not really a spoiler. Oh, no, right ahead. Okay, because oh, I'm sure we'll talk about those in this program eventually. There's a scene where Spider-Man, in Amazing Spider-Man 2, played by Peter Garfield, is, is fighting Electro, who's played by Jamie Foxx. Uh, they have Electro look more like he does in the Ultimate Spider-Man comics, mm-hmm. where he's like a blue man. In um, a group? A naked blue man. A light blue, yeah. Not depressed. Not not Tobias. Uh, dabba dee dabba die. Dabba dee dabba die. Dabba dee dabba die. Where's this going? Yeah, so as um, Electro is, is fighting Spider-Man, he... He kind of like bounces off different parts of the floor, and as he does, it it plays a different sound for the reverberation, and together it's to the tune of "Itsy Bitsy Spider." Oh wow! And at one point, I think he even hums "Itsy Bitsy Spider," and we hear "Itsy Bitsy Spider" in some of the musical score. So, that's the amazing Spider-Man Two for you. Huh. Well, I guess I'll cross that bridge when we cover it. Yep, not anytime soon. All right, for uh, so we're doing Nightmare on Elm Street uh, one through five next. Uh, by one we mean the original um, by Robert England. So, and yeah, Wes Craven died. That's sad. That was a few years ago. But I mean, man, Wes Craven, George Romero, Toby Hooper. It's been a lot of the horror greats have uh, gone to the great beyond. On that cheery note, for a sequel cast two, this is Matt. <laughs> this is Thrasher. <laughs> Same. Please kill Peter Parker. Get me my pills. No, sir, sir, no. Your blood pressure. Ah, uh, oh, do I take two of these? Do I take it with food? Do I take it with uh, coffee? Romeo loved Juliet. Juliet, she felt the same When he put his arms around her He said, Julie, baby, you're my flame Thou givest fever When we kiss it, fever with thy flaming use Fever Sequelcast 2 is a proud member of the Battleship Retention podcast fleet. Find another great film and TV podcast at battleshipretention.com. The theme song to Sequelcast 2 is written and performed by Mark with a C. Listen to his music at markwithac.com. You can also listen to Sequelcast 2 on the go at Stitcher. Head on over to stitcher.com and search for Sequelcast 2 to give it a listen.
This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.